Hello and welcome to the latest Autocar Business Live webinar. My name is Mark Tishaw and I am the editor of Autocar. Today's topic is the fast changing used car market, the challenges facing it and how to conquer those challenges and see the opportunities within the marketplace. We will explore the disruption to the market following the pandemic and the challenges it faces as the, new, as the supply of new cars rebounds to normal levels. We have four speakers today who have kindly given up their time to join us over the next hour. First, we have Karen Hilton, CEO of Haycar, a leading car buying marketplace. And it is Haycar we hold today's webinar in association with. Jackie Barker is the global OEM director at Helu, an automotive sales technology firm with more than 30 years of experience in improving the car buying experience. Nigel Hurley is the CEO of CarShop, a prominent used car retailer focused on the quality of the customer experience. And we're also joined by Martin Miller, the founder of EV Experts, a used electric car specialist with dealerships in Surrey and Hampshire. Please do ask questions using the form on your screen and we'll look to get as many of them as possible. We always have great interaction uh, in these webinars, so it'd be great to hear from our audience today. Karen, let's come to you first uh, to set the scene. What, what's the biggest change you've seen in the online used car market through Haycar over the past three years? I mean, I think it's probably easier to say what's, what's stayed the same because very little has. Um, I think if you look at the last, um, you know, so Haycar was founded in 2019 um, and actually we don't have a normal year of data yet, um, given what's happened in the last um, two or three years. I think if you look at them, you've got a, a, a structural change in the supply of used cars in the market um, driven by COVID and the chip shortages and the changes in new car manufacturing. And, it, and it's going to take a couple of years for that to wash out. Um, we've seen the cost of money change. Um, and, you know, certainly I'm part of the generation that's just not used to talking about interest rates or inflation. It's not it's not a lived experience. And we're seeing that play out in terms of people's, um, I, I guess, uh, disposable income and, and their buying capacity. I think we've also seen this sort of uh, disruption uh, and innovation through necessity. Um, and, and it's interesting when you look at sort of the, the curves of disruption now. Actually, COVID drove a lot of change through necessity. Actually, when you look at kind of various different verticals and industries now, lots of them are actually kind of back where they probably should be in terms of e-commerce adoption, etc. Um, and that, that kind of COVID period almost creates a, a, a false spike of data. Um, so everything's changed. Um, and, and I think probably the one question that all of us are asking ourselves is, when does normal come back and, and what is normal? Thank you, Karen. Uh, and Nigel, a similar opening question to you, really. How has perhaps a more traditional car supermarket uh, used car model changed in, in a similar time period? Uh, it's huge, huge change the last three years, uh, Mark. I think uh, the first, I suppose the first event that, that, that sort of started people thinking was the introduction of the uh, pure online retailers that uh, entered the market. And I think that was the first start of uh, rapid change in, in, I think, in our world. I think then, of course, early uh, 2020, we had to close. Um, and then we had periods where we were only partially open and we had to you know, completely rewrite the way we, we sold cars. So in a car supermarket, traditionally, we have high footfall, uh, lots of cars on the forecourts and customers making decisions, you know, face to face. And uh, we found ourselves in a position where we had no choice, but if we were going to sell cars, we had to sell it remotely 
they had to sell it over uh, over the internet or over the phone. Uh, we had to find a way because we had no choice to deliver cars to customers unless they paid for the car in full before they'd come to see it on the day of collection. And that for us in a in a car supermarket world was was huge change, especially when you think about the age profile of the cars that we sell. You know, typically our heartland is three to five years old, but we'll sell cars up to eight years old and convincing customers to you know, pay for a car in full before they'd seen a car of the age was was tricky. But we found, uh, you know, we found that customers would if they had no choice. We sold thousands of cars in that period and delivered them successfully over there. Uh, so I think that's been a huge change. And of course, the knock on effect of what happened with COVID in terms of new car supply uh, brought on by parts availability, et cetera, has had a huge impact, therefore, on used car supply. And I suppose if you were in a used car supermarket world five years ago, you enjoyed all the all the frustrations that ha that, that were there in the new car environment with oversupply um, and pressure to hit you know high expectations in terms of volumes for the manufacturers it was a feeding ground uh, of luxury for a car supermarket where you had choice and you could you know your skill in purchasing and buying cars it really could make a difference in margin and I think today. The biggest change that we're wrestling with is that shortage of supply, which still hasn't eased. And you know, trying to create a margin uh, when you're buying, you know, buying is hard to buy, and then there's a ceiling it appears sometimes on what you can ask for cars. So, I think over the last three years, from a used car point of view, I think we've changed, we've adapted, um, and I think we've become more skim skillful in what we would class now as omni-channel omni retailing, but still finding and sourcing the right cars and preparing them quickly and getting them to market and making a margin is uh, is hard work. Thank you, Nigel. And Jackie, could you tell us about some of the work you do with OEMs at Keyloop in the used car market in, in the context of all this disruption and change and, and how that has evolved? Absolutely. I think um, because we're, we're, we facilitate that process through technology and that technology has to connect OEMs, the job that I do with Keyloop is to work with the global OEM team. So we are managing a huge amount of requests for interfaces that come from the OEM space into the retail space. Our customers are primarily the retailers that license our technology. And what we're doing at the moment, the big focus for us, having seen a huge transformation ourselves with the acquisition of many layered applications and many businesses that we're pulling into our own um, ecosystem. We're also modernizing the way we work with our partner program so that that flow of data is a lot more seamless. So the big focus for us at the moment is how do we manage all of those users that, that regularly kind of connect into our technology and provide that omni-channel experience. For that to happen, the, the way for that to happen is to connect everything from the first touch point, if it's through a platform like Haycar, how does that customer then find their way into the retailer and complete that purchase? So connecting things like our showroom systems into front end marketplaces that then lead you back into the whole life of that experience. We don't want to just focus on the beginning of the sale, but it actually loyalty and retention happens in the way that customers use those retailers through the life of the vehicle. And it's really important that we understand actually the majority of the profit that's made by our customers happens in after sales, not just in the new car sales space. But there's been so much focus on that initial purchase in terms of all of the kind of noise in the press about, you know, how customers buy from this industry. What we want to make sure we do is not just talk about four walls, but we talk about an ecosystem and how we provide the technology that facilitates that ecosystem. 
And when we talk about experience first, it's not just about how customers buy from our retailers, it's how our retailers use our technology. So it's making it more seamless, more connected, um, and that flow of data really transforms the way that those retailers bring their own products to market. So there's a lot of work going on to kind of put all of that together. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, Martin, just to you, how has the used electric car market grown? You're quite a new business. Has the used car electric market accelerated as quickly as sales of new EVs? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think a few things have changed. Uh, we started in 2017. We were really selling to early adopters or even innovators. They were typically 80 mile range vehicles. Uh, it was a niche product to a niche audience. Um, but now it's really early majority that are purchasing the vehicles. Um, and that's also led to um, a growth of brands that are in the marketplace. I mean, when we launched in 2017, there were really only four vehicles that we sold. We've got 19 different brands in stock at the moment. Um, so the choice is getting bigger for the consumer. Um, and therefore, we're stocking a wider range of vehicles. Um, but we also have got to talk about price. Um, in fact, in, when we launched in 2017, EVs were actually really quite low priced. I mean, we were selling Zoe's at £4,900. You know, they were really struggling to find homes. Then in sort of 21, ship shortage, supply and demand issues, they become quite expensive. And now they've come back down again. So we've had a real fluctuation in price, which is um, difficult to manage as a business. It's also difficult for consumers because when things are changing in price quite rapidly, um, that's difficult to make them confident that now's the time to purchase. Thank you, Martin. So, Karen, I'll probably come to you uh, for this one first, but I think it's something everyone want to comment on. Um, used car prices have, have been national news really over the last couple of years, driving inflation. Where are we with sort of the prices and, and value now? Are, are we at the peak? Are we on the way down? What's the state of play? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, I didn't think I'd ever use my um, Adam Smith economic uh, lectures so much as I have done in the last couple of years. Um, I think there's, you know, the media is responsible for some of this. There's this kind of widespread panic that kind of prices are about to plummet and we're going to go off a cliff edge. But there are no signals that supply is improving to the point that that's going to drive that. So if you look at the balance of supply and demand, we're still in a market where um, there isn't enough supply and it's going to take a while for that to start coming back through. You've still got people staying in kind of their new car agreements, extending because there isn't the supply to move them into new ones. Um, so there isn't that kind of supply coming back in. And, and despite the doom and gloom and the kind of uh, uh, cost of living crisis that we're all going through, there is still demand. So I think the, the, the kind of bringing together of those two factors, we're in a bit of a plateauing state. We're sort of in a, you know, one, one and a half percentage point drop month on month. And I think that will continue. I, th I think it's a fool's game to think that we're suddenly going to go through this cliff edge. Because if we were, I think we would have already done it by now. Um, but but my, I guess my prediction is we'll, we'll continue to see prices realign slowly over the next couple of months. And, and don't forget, we're still seeing used car prices at an all-time high uh, versus where they were in 2019. So we have a long way to go back down um, and we have an awful lot of new car supply that needs to work its way through the system um, to, to drive any real kind of sustained um, changes in prices. I think the EV space is, is different and, and I guess Martin's more of an expert there. Um, 
there's definitely a bit more volatility in the EV space. Um, and I guess there's more and more new entrants come into play. Um, and with the price realignment that you've seen, I guess, happening within the Tesla space, there, there's a little bit more volatility there. I think that coupled with the cost of domestic electricity probably being front of mind for everyone at the moment, I think that's stalling a little bit of, um, uh, I guess, consumer intent there. Martin, I'll come back to you, actually. Is there anything you want to build on in there? Are you, are you seeing that volatility day to day, week to week? Absolutely. Um, you know, it really has been uh, quite a, a volatile price market. Um, absolutely. I think it was due to the rise in electricity prices, interest rates, EVs particularly at one point were quite high priced due to the shortage of supply. Um, but now we're reaching price parity with a lot of vehicles where petrol or the ice equivalent is the same price. We're seeing that that's actually tipping point. We're also actually seeing EV prices going up in certain categories. Certain cars have reached a point where they are just such good value that consumers are really snapping them. Um, but yeah, there's more volatility ahead. I think the key thing with the EVs is not all EVs are the same. So some have got, I think, further to go down and some aren't. we're definitely seeing going back up again. Um, it's 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 uh, brand and sector specific. Nigel, what segments of cars are, are proving most successful at the moment and perhaps which are the most challenging to ship? Well, I think certainly more successful cars are the cars that actually bring with it more risk. So the cars that we tend to do have the fastest stop turn in these cars that are sort of £10,000 or less. So you could say the affordability bracket. Um, the danger of that today is that the, the, the kind of car that you're going to acquire at that kind of price level is older with more mileage on and therefore the aftermath of, of, of having that faster turning stock uh, can be quite painful in terms of goodwill policy, um, per, re, repurchases, etc. So certainly the fastest turning segment is probably the, the, the segment with the most risk uh, and you have to manage that uh, as best you can. Yeah, but typically for us, anything sort of um, family uh, between sort of 10 and 15,000 is also selling well and it's a safer bet. So that's tend to tend to be where our heartland is. We struggle a little bit. I don't know whether it's ourselves uh, or it's the market, but anything sort of north of 20, 25,000 pounds, we, we, we find hard work, harder work and we have to be keener on price to sort of get those cars away. Uh, but, uh, you know, definitely as you come down the low, the, the price bands, we have, uh, we have more attractive uh, stock turn. Aaron, are you seeing similar on, on Haycar, those sort of trends um, in the online space being mirrored on, on the forecourts as well? Yeah, I think we're seeing very similar things to Nigel's point. I guess if you think about that kind of the cycle of stock that we've been through, we're also at the point now where the used cars that are in that kind of peak kind of three to four year old bracket from a price point of view, there's less of them and they're a bit less pretty. Um, and, they, and they've lived a life. And, and to Nigel's point, that just means when you are selling them, uh, you know, the constant bal balancing in this industry is managing customer expectation, which is here versus a four-year-old car that's done 60,000 miles and, and frankly has lived a life. Um, what we're also seeing is the, the willingness for people to buy online is uh, higher in that segment. So actually committing to a 10, 12, 13,000 pound car online, actually people are really happy to do so. And, and I think this also start, you know, not within perhaps some of the premium segment, but I think 
you know, f- f- for years, I mean, I come from a Volkswagen family. Everyone's always driven a Volkswagen. We've all, you know, and my mum now drives a Skoda and my dad drives a Hyundai. Um, and this is like peak news in our family. But I think that is starting the path towards cars are becoming a little bit like white goods. You need one. You're probably less fussed about the brad, the ban, uh, sort of the badge on the front. And I think as a nation, we've we don't have that connection to a UK factory anymore. We don't have a, a British home-built brand where everyone drives a Rover because they're built and made in Britain. Therefore, we, you know, we're a bit more promiscuous in our buying habits, which I think is probably why you know you see some of the kind of the growth of the Chinese manufacturers coming over because it's like, well, we're we're ripe for destruction from a brand point of view. We're probably at our least loyal point than we've ever been that's no jackie just just to bring you in there that this phrase of bubble bursting is that is that something you recognize uh, around values i think well i'm not sure where best place necessarily to have that i think we're not always the first point of um of call from a consumer marketplace point of view that's definitely karen's um sort of sweet spot i think what we're seeing though really is particularly to your point, Karen, the Chinese manufacturers coming in, I think what will be really interesting now is we're working with a number of those brands to look at how we can help them on board UK, at a UK network really quickly. And they're not looking at a direct-to-consumer model. They're looking at a how do they get volume? How do they access the fleet market? How can they make sure that they, if they have volume ready to sell, there's a market with age stock that'll be particularly ready to buy. And I think you're absolutely right. The EV brands are... There's much more fluidity in in that kind of people just want to buy a thing. They only need to compare this thing with that thing. And part of the job we have to do as an industry is to educate around and make it easier for customers to understand range or the cost of ownership. Or, you know, I think we we also have a different relationship with our vehicles since we were all trapped at home. I think my my one of my cars did about a year to the gallon, you know, at one point. We just aren't in our vehicles as much as we used to be. We're much more flexible with how we travel to places. I rarely drive if I can get a train um, because I think I need the predictability of how I get from point A to point B. So I think as consumers, we are a, a lot more informed when we make our choices. So in terms of bubble bursting, I think... Um, It'll be really interesting just to see how the prices normalize as the stock starts to normalize. And um, I think, you know, the point about things aren't going to fall off a cliff necessarily because there's just no evidence to suggest that. And um, what we see and what we're looking at now is how we analyze the data around transactions. We see over a billion transactions through our DMSs globally, um, which gives us a huge amount of data. I think that's we're trying to unlock some of that to make sure that that informs what our customers do in terms of making decisions about the age of the stock. What are we seeing in terms of the price of the stock? What does that um, mean in terms of how those vehicles are then serviced and maintained? Because older stock requires increased maintenance or increased frequency of maintenance or different levels of maintenance. So um, how do you then bring that vehicle back into resell it, refinance it, manage it back through an OEM's platform? We're also seeing some of those um, concepts be explored. So I think I've not seen from the conversations that we've had globally with OEMs that there is one solution that will be replicated by everybody. I think lots of people are testing lots of different things and kind of flying their own plane to see what works. Also, we're seeing different markets behave differently. So 
in South Africa versus Canada, there's a different level of maturity based on how the networks work and the stock availability and how consumers want to buy. So we have to be quite um, fluid in how we bring our products to market to serve each of those markets as they want to consume the tech that provides that experience for their customers, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, Karen touched on it and Jackie as well there, Martin, was was brand loyalty. I mean, we're seeing EV space as, as ripe for disruption. Do you do you sense brand loyalty in, in the EV space or is it simply people just want an electric car? So I think there is one brand that that, is, that has brand loyalty and that is Tesla. Um, there's no doubt about it. There are, um, we literally call them Tesla artists that are you know, loyal to that brand. But um, uh, we are seeing a lot of customers who come along they might they book a test drive on a Tesla Model Three. They buy a, a Jaguar I-Pace or a, or a Mustang because people are seeing them um, for what they are, which are um, pieces of technology. Um, they're not loyal to a brand of technology, probably less than they were to uh, a conventional fueled vehicle. Nigel, uh, a question that's come in uh, from Richard Rouse, a technical account manager at BCA. With the influx of Chinese manufacturers bringing ever increasing numbers of new higher quality EV models to market at more affordable price points, what impact is that likely to have on residual values of EVs from existing mainstream brands? Well, it's probably a question for Martin more than more than myself really today. I mean, we we stock, we've got 6,000 cars available today on our website for sale, of which only 28 are electric vehicles. So in terms of having the experience to be able to answer that question properly, maybe that's one for Martin. Yeah, Martin, come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think the key thing is 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 not necessarily going to impact the the value of um, EVs. It's what customers are choosing against. So, for example, quite often you would be selling uh, something like an MG4, which is going to retail for around twenty five thousand pounds. That customer isn't necessarily comparing it to a Volkswagen ID3. They may be comparing that choice with a Nissan Qashqai petrol automatic. So I think customers look across the range of solutions and, and they don't see EV as a separate solution. It's, I want to move my family around. I've got off-street parking. Oh, an EV is probably too expensive. Oh, petrol automatic is probably expensive. And they'll, and they'll compare and contrast across the two. So I think consumers are looking wider than we necessarily um, look into segments in our marketplace. Nigel, you mentioned there's so few of your of your cars in stock are electric. Why is that? Well, it's through choice, obviously. Um, um, we, you know, we we don't have the uh, demand. We haven't had the demand uh, for electric vehicles uh, over the last couple of years, mainly because of probably the heartland of where we sit, three to five. You know, we haven't had that that kind of car uh, availability to be able to get involved. And I think. At the point where we started getting excited about electric cars, which was at some point last year, um, we started to think about our infrastructure, you know, having charging points, at the prep centres that could rapid charge and, and, and charging points at the, at the facility. So we started to get excited uh, as we saw electric as the future. Obviously, it's coming. We were getting excited about getting involved last year. And I think as we started to get involved, we the, the market turned um and we got our fingers burnt um uh, quite quickly and we 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 jumped straight out again and i think now you know we we've, we've been quite selective you know hence the 28 cars that are on our website selective with the cars that we're buying but i think it's an interesting one i think the volatility in electric vehicles is is still there as martin as martin described i think today 
the cars have reached a price point in certain models where they look terrific value. You know, Teslas in particular, I think, you know, looking really cheap now. So I think we're going to find this volatility in the electric market over the, the next few months, maybe for, for longer. But I think certain cars are finding their feet, finding their, 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 their point at which they look really great value. And then I think we'll start to get more involved as we start to see that um, start to level out a little bit. But I just wanted to comment on the price bubble because I think that's interesting, really, again, in terms of perspective. I think Karen called it in terms of where we are right now. I think the level of the prices of entry of getting into a car has certainly grown over the last three or four years. But the volatility, if you exclude electric vehicles for a second, the volatility is gone. Um, and the only thing that will change that volatility is if some manufacturer does something that's spontaneous, unpredictable, that we can't foresee. Uh, and that's unlikely. And I don't think the supply uh, channels are easing sufficiently enough for us to see any impact this year at all. You know, so definitely you're starting to hear stories around certain manufacturers where products are becoming more available, but you're certainly still talking months out rather than weeks out or days out. And, and normally, you know, when you start to see targets being um, enforced on the on the retailers, uh, that's when you start to realise that there's a supply opportunity. And that's definitely not happening right now. So. I think this year will be quite normal. I think the one and a half percent that Karen was talking in the first half of the year will be what we'll see the decline, excluding EVs. And in the second half of the year won't really fall away as it used to do, you know, in the second half of the year in the fourth quarter. I think it'll remain fairly flat uh, in terms of uh, price uh, realignment. But EVs is a, a different kettle of fish. And I think we're going to see, you know, a continuation of opportunity and risk in that in that marketplace. But people like Martin will be on the ground, he'll, he'll, be, he'll be seeing it before it's happened. And we'll, sadly, we're not experts. So we'll we'll probably catch the wave when it's about to fall as opposed to catching it before it rises. So uh, it's a dangerous territory, I think, still for us. Karen, how about on the Haycar platform? What, what kind of stock mix have you got on there? EV something you try and stock or is it is it that heartland of sort of the, the 10 to 12,000 pound cars you, you were mentioning earlier? I mean, to be, I mean, we've seen the average price on Haycar go up over the last three years through price rises. So 2019 average price on site was probably 19,500. Today it sits about 23,500. So, so you see the impact of kind of, I guess, supply and demand in there. Um, we're definitely seeing um, more and more demand in um, the lower price segments. Um, as I said, we're, we're seeing more, uh, more, more demand for those consumers to want to buy online. We're also seeing an interesting thing come out in, in, in terms of younger buyers um, and whether we're talking millennial, Gen Z, et cetera, they're the most promiscuous of consumers. Um, so actually, when you look at kind of the first kind of car they inquire on versus what they go on to buy, actually, you see some really interesting journeys of came in on X, bought Y, God knows how they got there. Um, uh, so, so that's a, a, an interesting space. Um, and, and yeah, I think it, it's interesting to see also, I, I guess, how retailers have adopted. I think Nigel made the point earlier on, if you're running a, if you're running a franchise dealership, generally your used car supply has been driven by a bit of pre-reg, um, your return activity when customers are changing their car at two and a half, three years. And therefore you're, you've never really had an issue putting a car in all the slots on the forecourt. Um, and actually that's shifted a fair bit in the last three years because, you know, if you, I mean, we all had, I'm sure, periods where you drove past dealerships and you thought, wow, they've organised the cars really prettily, but you can see that there just aren't enough there. Um, 
and and also we start to see you know uh, you know prepping a five-year-old vehicle to an approved manufacturer standard uh, sometimes it's just cost prohibitive to actual kind of retailing um so so we're definitely seeing changes i think the one the one constant that hasn't gone away um and i think there's a couple of factors playing out is suvs are just still heartland um and actually when we look into the data on Heiko, we saw particularly kind of about 12 months into kind of COVID, when I think people have got their heads around the fact that this is going to impact the way we live and work for some time. We saw a lot of people with two cars going down to one. And therefore, I think you saw a little bit more of, um, you know, a traditional 2.4 family that maybe had a saloon car and a small hatchback now have one SUV because actually you haven't got two people commuting to an office five days a week. Therefore, the requirements have changed. Jackie, something within Keyleap, you're both commenting on that. How does the shift to the agency model for new cars affect the used car market as well? Is that is that driving change or is that change we'll, we'll see come through over the next few years? No, it's a really good question. I think what we're seeing from a how we connect the journey, we talked a lot earlier about how we're trying to power that kind of experience first principle. So what we've seen where we have seen agency deployed is um, often things like a you know, an MVP, a digital store, which will allow you to reserve something online or will allow you to do a complete, you know, purchase online experience. What we've seen is that that journey tends to be quite disconnected from the traditional retail experience. And, and this is the voice of an OEM, not my opinion, but the OEMs have focused so much on that initial sale, they've kind of neglected the whole life experience of the customer. So what happens to you as a consumer? And um, once you've kind of bought the vehicle, you need to live with it. So it tends to be very reliant still on the retailer doing the the handover and making sure that the customer experience comes from a human which is where we all you know certainly buy from what we're trying to um do to support that is to accelerate there's a whole kind of you know accelerate api program going on within our space to make sure that those connections are you know accelerated and brought online more quickly so the flow of data happens from oem into a showroom system, virtual showroom system that allows the handover to be seamless. So I think the areas that we've seen, and um, I know one of the questions will, will be looking at how customers want to buy from you, but it's like every customer wants to feel unique, but a lot of the touch points are similar. So where you start your search, you know, what will drive you into the market in the first place, how you want to buy from an OEM or how you want to buy a vehicle. What we're trying to make sure we provide, because some of the franchise retailers that we work with will have some of the OEMs wanting to bring a vehicle to market direct to consumer. Others will be staying with a wholesale model and others will be using an agency model. As a consumer, they just don't care. They just want to buy the thing and they want it to be simple. I think how we make the, the accessibility of products to consumers as simple as possible and in line with how we buy other goods and services, I think Karen mentioned it's like a white good now, we're less um, we're unloyal than we ever used to be, but you'll win me and keep me on experience. So how good that experience is and how good it makes me feel will be down to the humans that you interact with, whether that's through a WhatsApp chat or a video call, or I've walked in because I've done a lot of my research. So I think what we have to remember in the middle of all of this is a customer that wants to buy something from you and how you deliver that product or that experience to that customer will really determine how loyal I am as a consumer when it comes to buying the next thing from you. So I think agency is, 
it's you know the new big thing and actually yes we want all of that was driven really by a frustration of disconnected experiences so manufacturers want to bring a product to market and yet the experience you get as a consumer at best was inconsistent at worst was dreadful so really where we've seen it work really well we've seen OEMs launch it in South Africa and had real success because there's transparency and loyalty in the experience so I think what we have to do as an industry is make sure that the data flows the customer doesn't get lost in that experience and that we deliver the experience the customers expect when they're buying a really expensive product. Nigel the, the customer expectation and experience is something uh, a prides itself on how have you tracked sort of customer behavior change and, and what are their expectations now uh, in buying a used car versus a few years ago? Well, I suppose from a behavioural point of view, the way customers now uh, look to buy a car and the way they make inquiries with us has changed completely. So, you know, gone are the days of 50% of your inquiries being telephone and 50% being showroom. You know, that channel's completely broken now. And customers will call or web chat you or email you or they'll find different ways of getting in touch with you. So I think we've opened up for our customers, quite rightly so, various channels in which they can talk to us, communicate with us. And I think that's been quite a challenge for us to get 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 used to and, and be good at in all those areas. So we work hard looking at each of the channels where customers try to interact with us to see how good we are and challenge ourselves to sort of go and inspect that process to make sure it's as good as it can be. And, and of course, when you look under the stone, sometimes it's not as, 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 as good as you'd like it to be. So you do something about it. But I think certainly customers' behaviours have changed uh, in the way that they want to interact with us. They're more informed. Uh, I would say they're sort of less um less willing to accept poor service so you have to you know the standards of uh, of delivering good service uh, need to be met and i think people are quick to call you out if if you don't meet those and rightly so um and and, and i don't think they expect any more than doing what you said you were going to do you know so i don't think customers really expect you to go the extra mile they just expect you to do what you promised to do on the time that you promised it and i think that invariably is where generally people fall down um, so I don't think their expectations are unrealistic. I just think it's hard for some sometimes for our teams to avoid making promises and commitments that they don't then fulfill uh, at the very time that they said they would do. So I think customers' expectations are not unrealistic, but certainly are more demanding. I think they've got wider channels now to make their voice heard if they feel that they've not had the level of service that they expect. But, you know, from my experience in the car supermarket world, every complaint that comes across my door that I see is never unfounded you know it's always for something where we've done something we should have done better and it usually revolves around communication um and you know so i don't think i don't think it's an unreasonable ask but you know definitely you know customers are less willing to accept us letting them down in, in the basic areas like that martin typical ev uh used car buyer I know you, you were saying before you're a relative newcomer to the industry, but uh, how, how knowledgeable do you find an EV used buyer? Is it, is it different from what you've heard, someone perhaps buying an internal combustion engine car? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, we tend to have um, extremes of customers. Uh, when we first started, we, we had people who, you know, they'd spent 50 hours on YouTube researching that particular model. And, you know, I've sat there and had customers say, which graphics chip has that Tesla got in it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they've got to that level of real detail, but they're not they're not our main customers right now. Um, we still have those as customers, but we, we're finding a lot more people. It's now about our role is to educate them. And, you know, the opening line is 
and you charge at home and you talk through charging at home. And if they can't charge at home, then it's not a no go away, but it's this is the local charging solution. So you've got to talk charging. You then got to actually have a conversation with them about range because they all say they want 400 miles. And then they, you ask them the last time they drove five hours without stopping and they can't remember and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you, it is a consultative sell. Um, but it's really consultative with the consumer before you even talk about the vehicle. And that's the bit that we have, we we pride ourselves in doing is talking a customer through that. And there are times when we say actually an EV isn't right for you. And it's you've got to be you've got to be honest enough to do that and say, with that budget and the constraints of and the user case that you've got, it's not right for you. Uh, it's it's and it's I think it's being really honest with the customer. And taking them through that journey that's that's really important i think mark if i can add to what nigel said i think the the bit that doesn't help us from an industry point of view is uh, we are all used to just buying new things online now and our expectation is instant gratification um and i had an example of this the other day you know i ordered some new gym kit at about 11 o'clock at night it arrived at my house by 10 o'clock the next morning I was slightly uncomfortable with that because I feel like someone somewhere has suffered to get that to me that quickly and I didn't need it that quickly. Um, but that's that's a gym t-shirt that is in a factory somewhere in a plastic bag and it's brand new. We are talking about complicated things that are used. They've had a life, they've been somewhere, they've been on road trips, they've got chips, they've got dents, etc. So I do think there is this there is a generation coming through that have an ex expectation of how you buy things but cars aren't in the same bracket I, I think layered on top of that and, and Jackie will know more about this than I do but you know, I spent 10 years in OEMs the systems are so fragmented you know if you look at within an OEM landscape within a dealer landscape god forbid if you look within a dealer landscape that decides to partner with multiple franchises that aren't part of the same kind of uh kind of holding company it's it's hard it's hard to do business it's hard to retail um you know I, I bought a used car six months ago I knew what I wanted um and the, the sales process was me emailing the guy I bought my car off last time saying I'd like one of these can you let me know when you get one in stock and I'll buy it Here's my price range, here's my spec. So the buying process was really simple. It was three emails. I spent 65 minutes sat in a showroom signing paperwork. And that's not changed in the last 10, 15, 20 years. But I'd done all my finance e-signatures online. Everything else was kind of digitized, but there was still a bit where I had to sit in a physical premises with some coffee and go through bits of paper in a little thing that then just lives in the drawer in the dresser. And you kind of look at it and you go, like, well, if the customer expectation that buying a car should just be better, it's like, well, there's some stuff that's fundamentally broken that isn't easy to solve. Jackie, uh, there's a couple of bits I want to come to you on that, but, but Karen, just staying with you a second. What, at Heikai, you know, on, online, online platform, how can, how can you help make that better? You know, what, 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 what's your pitch? What's, how do you improve things in that space? Yeah, so, um, I mean, for us, the bit has always been, uh, and, and we're really clear on the view on this, we don't see a world where you can run a business where pe people purely buy online. Not right now. It's, it, the customer adoption isn't there. It doesn't work. Um, I, I think we've got a few examples of that in the market. Where there is a space is 
where people want to choose how they want to buy their car. So some people know their local dealer, have bought from them many years, want to come onto a platform like ours and just see what they've got in stock and make a connection. Some people have no care whatsoever where the car is, who, who they're buying it from. They just want to, be able to click a button online, transfer some money and have it delivered to their house. And the real devil is the bit in the middle of someone that actually knows exactly what they want and is willing to put a little bit of money down, but then maybe still wants to go and see it. Um, and and I, I think, you know, it was, I think it was John, actually, one of the Smith brothers said, you know, it's the can you just bit that catches the industry out because, you know, I really like it. I want to buy it. But could you just do that little chip on the bonnet? And could you just buff that seat up? And could you just see if there was a slightly tidier parcel shelf somewhere in the back of the parts department? That's the bit that makes this industry complex. I think to Nigel's point, you know, we've sold thousands of cars online now where we direct, you know, directly transact with a customer on behalf of the dealer. So we act as the sales channel for the dealership. Um, feedback is instant. You know, to, to Nigel's point earlier on, you, you know whether you've, get it, you've got it right or wrong. Um, and a lot of the time it just comes down to communication, you said you called me, you called me a day late, therefore I'm annoyed. Um, so, so for us, it's been an 18 month journey through actually looking at every single car that we've sold and kind of going, where could we have been better? What could have been slicker? How can we automate it? And, and what I love within this organization is, you know, there is literally a wall that we write things on to say, this bit's a bit painful now. How can we use tech to make it go better? And it's just iterative. So the customers that buy a car through us today will feel a hundred X better than the ones that bought 18 months ago because we just find the pain and then ask the question how could it be better what could we do differently Jackie what is the, the tech challenge and that Karen describes there you know how, how do we move away from the, the 65 minutes of, of signing bits of paper and, and that integration with, with across channels different retailers OEMs etc yeah, 100%. That is like one of the worst bits. Also, how they then, how you then try to solve stuff after you've bought the thing and you just want to leave. So, um, we, one of the applications that we bought was a documentation platform. So, actually, we relaunched all of our led applications into kind of Keyloop nomenclature last year. So, Keyloop Docs is a product that sits within our ecosystem. Um, so, you shouldn't have to sign anything in person. It should all be done, but, you know, it could all be done remotely and then. Actually, it's much more secure if those docs um, sit within a within a cloud for the retailer. So actually, you haven't got to have something sitting in a drawer behind you. It should all be stored digitally, and that should all sit within either your CRM, whether we provide that or somebody else provides that. So a lot of the work that we've done, if it's not within our ecosystem and you've got an existing solution, that sits within our partner ecosystem, or if you have a third-party CRM, that sits within our wider tech ecosystem so we have and um, the way that we map it all out is we have like a racetrack of everything from sales through after sales and back around again through retention but all of those things include finance documentation everything sort of sits within that within those products each market that we operate in has a slightly different flavor depending on what's available through our own products tech stack or whether it's through a partner ecosystem solution and um, if we don't have it we either build we have a build by our partner strategy, which sits very much within the team that I work in. Um, and the way that we try, and there are three ways that we try and, I suppose, coin the, the experience. You've either got, I mean, Karen, you mentioned this, you've either got a kind of the high tech, so it's, I just want to do it on my phone. It's, 
high touch, I want to be able to specify my stitching or it's convenient. I want to put it in a basket and I want to leave. So you, like me, you know what you want. You go, can you just get, could you just get me that thing? I don't want to have to reconfigure something. I kind of know what I want and I know how I live, but trying to find the thing, I just don't have the time always to find what I'm looking for. So that really feels more like a curated experience where the customer knows the person so you obviously have a great relationship with the person you bought your car from you trust that they're going to look after you you'll go back to them time and time again which is great different people want to buy in, in totally different ways and how we provide the experience is is challenging what we've also come off the back of and anyone using our systems will know we've come out of years and years of oem saying or oh, could you just so we've done lots and lots of individual bespoke developments that then are expensive to maintain and deploy. So we're going through a huge transformation of lifting stuff out of DMSs into a central platform that then enables us to have that API layer wrapped around that core data platform that will flow, that flow of data should be much more seamless and much more secure going through API layers rather than having, you know, updates coming once a day or every couple of hours. So um, the work that's going on very much the biggest investment for us is migrating to cloud, migrating to a single unified data model, which allows that data so we can build once and deploy many. Most of the requests that we get from OEMs pretty much are doing a similar job. Same with retailers who just want to help the customer to buy from you or to maintain their vehicle through you. And most of that functionality is similar. It's how we develop and deploy that tech in a way that really works securely for customers is, is how we kind of, how we're, that's our biggest focus now. So most of our engineering teams are focused on making sure that the OEM integrations are working and flowing as they should, but also that as we migrate into cloud, we're retiring lots of interfaces that are, no, are difficult and expensive to maintain. And actually API layers will, will facilitate all of that experience. Questions coming in, uh, many questions now. Nigel, this is one, one for you from, from John Evans. Picking up on Nigel's comments about £10,000 cars being a risk in terms of after sales and goodwill, does Nigel think some of this is a result of the cost of living crisis forcing owners to neglect servicing that the cars that are in the worst condition that they might have been otherwise a few years ago? Definitely want to sort of answer with some honesty, really. I think, I, I don't know whether the cost of living crisis is making people not do the right thing when they've got you know bills to pay on their car. I suspect it probably does get them to cut some corners. Um, I think for me, it's about the level of preparation to make that car viable um, to sell. Uh, and then invariably, um, as it's a used vehicle that's, I think, been been, been lived in for, for a number of years and maybe done a few more miles than you'd like, things go wrong. Um, so typically what tends to happen in terms of that bracket for us is cosmetically, the cars are perfect. You know, we get the cars looking as good as they need to be, that kind of price range of car. Uh, probably better than actually uh, we should do. But it's the mechanical areas that you can't foresee that catch you out, um, whether it be during the preparation process, which then means that that car is not commercially viable to retail or when it's post-sale, where something that, you know, you just could not have picked up either in the preparation process or the road test that then you fall foul of within the 90-day period that, that we give our customers. So that tends to be why it's a dangerous territory, not 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 necessarily maybe because they've probably not uh, not not invested in their cars they should have done. Just to you, Nigel, just on the after-sales topic, 
How is the after sales uh, business changing for used cars? Uh, are warranty and service packages getting harder to sell as, as new cars become more reliable? Well, it's an interesting question for me in the car supermarkets. I came from franchise world and I was surprised how little after sales retail work we did. Um, and so I came into this industry three and a half years ago from, from being with the franchise world for, for a long time and uh, quickly realised that in the car supermarket, really the opportunity for uh, service retail is um, not as fruitful as, uh, as probably uh, investing that technician's time in other, other things that can reduce your costs, like reducing policy and goodwill and cars that go wrong, fixing them yourself rather than allow it to go to a third party. So we, you know, we were penetrating at quite good levels uh, a year or so ago on service plans before we sort of moved away from that. Warranty, uh, the penetration is still very high. I think uh, I think customers like to feel that they've got that comfort of knowing that should something go wrong, they've not only got you to come back to, but they've got a warranty to fall back on. So we've seen no impact on warranty at the point where we uh, were still selling service plans you know we had a varying range of performance but it was more about ability and skill of the individual presenting that compelling case for the customer as opposed to the proposition itself question to you karen from chris ashton green ceo of regit cars how do you see the relationship changing between haycar and your dealer partners once the agency model is rolled out more substantially and if the OEM itself decides to do something similar in approved used cars? I mean, I think agency is fascinating as a topic um, because I think particularly within the UK space, we have lots of manufacturers approaching it in different ways. Um, so some that have kind of moved wholesale and been very clear on their plans to do so, some that are trying it with different verticals. Um, I think the and I say this as someone that you know, spent a lot of their career working for an OEM, I, I, it's a massive change for those organisations. Um, you know, they spent uh, an, the majority of history um, being distributors of vehicles um, and not dealing with customers face-to-face. -face. You know, they've been measuring retailers' abilities to deal with customers face-to-face. -face. So there is a massive transformation happening in those organisations in terms of being the main connector um, between the customer and the brand and then using the network to kind of, uh, I guess, handle delivery, handover, et cetera. Um, I think the, the, the bit that we know from consumer behavior is whatever the brand is, even if you know that you are definitely you know, buying insert brands next time, your first place of looking isn't often the manufacturer website because it's just not how people work. Um, you don't, there's a there's a less level of trust you want an independent view on it you want to understand and that's why people spend you know hours and days in things like reddit and goodness knows what um um and and i'm always amazed when i kind of um, spend some time within the honest john business that we acquired actually that there is this heartland of loyalist car enthusiasts that, that people are far more likely to take advice from than they are a kind of pretty branded website um so it, i think that you know the relationship for us will be the same as it is now which is how can we help you get your brand to market um ultimately we're a place where consumers come to find things um and i think as more and more oems transition towards agency they will need access to more and more platforms like ours where customers are coming to find things um so so i think it's actually a big opportunity i, I think actually the most exciting role in an oem right now is probably that person that's heading up marketing um because it's not just a brand awareness job anymore. 
it's not just a, how many leads can I generate to the dealer network through the website. It's a direct to consumer model in some places. Um, and, and actually, I, I think that becomes a really, really exciting space in the next couple of years. Martin, a question you might like to take that's coming in from Jonathan Hootman, a finance manager at BCA. Looking further ahead, what impact on the used car market do you see as we get closer to the government deadline for the sale of new EVs only? Do you see a spike in demand or price for ICE cars leading up to that or the opposite and it will drive people more into to EVs? I think the pricing, um, I think there's a couple of ways of looking at that. The consumer demand is there for EVs, no doubt about it. People in some segments, uh, some segments of the population are really keen to have it. Others are less so. And so clearly the there's not going to be a sudden switch moving, meaning that prices of ice will go up or the prices of EVs will go down. I think it's going to be quite, it'll take time. But what we found is that once people have gone to an EV, they stick with an EV. So I think the, the demand will continue to ramp up. And if you look at new, that predicts that used will, will, will follow. Um, I, I think there will be there will be points where people will say, oh, I bought one in 2029 because it's the last opportunity to buy, that sort of thing. I think there'll be a bit of that. But I think actually... Um, I think that the transition, the market will, will play the transition. It will, there will be, it, it won't be just one market. There'll be so many segments in the market that different products will, 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 will fluctuate at different levels. I think it's quite interesting. So particularly when there have been kind of fairly firm government announcements, um, when the 2030 deadline first came onto the news agenda, we saw a real spike in people looking at things like Porsche Lamborghinis. And you kind of, and yes, there's not a huge volume of them, but I think people are going to go, well, if I'm not going to be able to have fun for much longer, what what's my next car or the one after that? And when am I going to have some fun? And it was a short term spike and it then died down. But I, you know, I think there will be a lot of people thinking about what's my, what's my last hurrah? And what does that look like? But I think also there will be some other segments where, for example, um, city cars, um, you know, it becomes so obvious to buy electric um, that they become uh, that segment will, will will flip over quicker than larger vehicles that need you know SUVs that the people run for family vehicles for long holidays. That's a harder. It's a different segment. So I think the way segments will work will 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 vary. Yeah, I mean, I I have a two and a half year old daughter, and I have literally no idea what she's going to learn to drive in. I can't predict it. Um. I want her to learn to drive in a beaten up Vauxhall Corsa because that's what I was subjected to. I don't think it's going to look like that. No. Nigel, is it production bestsellers like the, the, the Ford Focus, Ford Fiesta ending over the next couple of years, how will some of these heartland cars disappearing affect the second-hand market in the longer term? Will it just simply become something else, becomes this sort of this, this staple used car as someone asking that he's had four Ford Fiestas over the years? I don't think we'll miss a heartbeat. I think it will just be business as normal. The gap will get filled uh, a little bit like what we talked about earlier about these cars. Now they're all good. You know, white goods kind of was used as an expression, wasn't it, about these cars. So I, I think it will be for those people that have been loyal to that brand, if they still exist, um, they'll just find an alternative. So I don't I don't even think we'll feel it. We'll not even see it. It'll just disappear and get filled by something else will be my view. 
Karen, how, how have you seen uh, demand or, or traffic on your website for, for things like the, the Focus Fiesta? Is, as those cars have sort of, you know, disappearing from the headlines, is demand tailing off or, or as Nigel says, people are just moving on to something else? I don't think the data tells a clear story at the moment. I, I think what what we see is a concentration of people for looking for a cheaper vehicle, kind of around the twelve, thirteen thousand pound mark. Um, that's definitely playing out. But I think uh, pe people are the biggest behaviour that we see on site is actually people are just driven by a monthly payment now. So actually, I come I, I come to a site to uh, with a budget of three hundred pounds. What can I get? Um, uh, and and, and I think that will just continue more and more um, because, you know, if, if, if people look at it today, I think Martin made the comment earlier on, you know, there are some older Model S, Model 3, whereby you actually you can just do a direct comparison. Like, do I want an early Tesla model that's quite cool? And do I want to become one of the cool people that are adopting that? Or do I want a Ford Focus for the same money? There's probably going to be more people in the camp of, I think I'd like to be cool and getting on with this new wave of electric vehicles please jackie do you, do you find uh, in your work with, with oems and, and used car platforms that that there's there's a willingness to embrace change and embrace technology on online tools in this marketplace 100 percent. i think um oems it's taken a you know a while they're obviously huge organizations and it just takes time and um, also they've been investing for like since the dawn of time in manufacturing vehicles, not in manufacturing tech. So they've had to import quite a lot of that skill and or kind of outsource a lot of that skill to, to kind of make sure they adopt it. Some of the really exciting stuff we're now seeing is how we take data from the vehicle and power that experience. So it's not just um, using technology to provide a, a good consumer experience as you buy and use your vehicle, but it's actually how you can then automate some of that technology now through the app that you use on your phone can enable you to book your service directly in that right straight into our DMS. So all of those back-end integrations enable that experience to be better than it was before. Next steps, we'll see it being even more kind of, you know, as data permissions get updated, how do you enable a customer to use an application to complete something? And how does that data then you know, take the mental load away from you? We don't want to think too much. I think Karen, it's like, you, you come to a marketplace because you're not going to build your shop millions of miles away from where all the other people are going. So you want, you kind of going to be where your footfall is. Similarly, customer expectation is being driven by every other vertical. So, um, so yeah, I think there's an absolute willingness to embrace technology and also to bring the skill in or to grow the skill within those OEMs to make sure that they're equipped to deal with that. A very quick last question. I'll come to you, Nigel, on a very topical one uh, with, with news on inflation today. How sensitive is, is the used car market to, to news like inflation rises, to interest rates rises as well when it comes to selling? I think in my segment, quite important. You know, uh, the customers that are typically at my heartland uh, are more sensitive to, to the cost of living crisis that we're in today. And that quarter percent increase will, will 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 mean more to them than it will do to somebody that's probably in a different bracket. So if I was a franchise world today, I'd say it makes no difference at all, really. You know, the kind of disposable income that those individuals have uh, it probably doesn't hurt them as much. It might it might hurt them because they've got a they've got a, got less in the bank that they had or less in the savings, but it's not fundamental. Whereas in in, in, in my heartland, it makes it does make a difference, and we do we do notice it. 
Thank you, Nigel. Uh, thank you, everyone, today. We're out of time. That hour absolutely raced by. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Nigel. And thank you, Martin. And of course, thank you to Haycar for supporting us with this webinar today. A fascinating chat. I, I hope you'll agree. Thank you to all your questions uh, from the audience as well. That's it for today. Uh, thank you very much. And we'll see you very soon on Autocar Business Live. Thank you.